Well, I couldn't have planned it any better. Uh, today is Valentine's Day. That means chocolate goes on radical discount tomorrow at CVS. I will meet you there. Um, it's Valentine's Day. And guess what? Today we are discussing love. The next two Sundays, we're looking at John's remarkable declaration, God is love. And there's so much to cover, I've decided to spread it over two weeks. We're going to look at what is love. And no, not that annoying song from Hathaway that was famous on Saturday Night Live. You remember, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt. Okay, we're not going there. We're not supposed to go there. Okay. Uh, Anyway, what is love? People have many competing answers to that question. And I think what we need to realize and what John shows us is that it's important to let God define what love is. And so that's what we see in our passage today. It's a a portrait of love. And so today's sermon is titled, um, God is Love, Part 1, The Portrait of Love. We are in 1 John, and we are in chapter 4, beginning in verse 7 and ending in verse 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, we want to know his will, we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we desire to know you more. We desire to know your will and your way. For when it is pressed into our lives, uh, our lives become alive. We become full, full of all kinds of things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Oh, to experience your love more and more. We pray that as we study this text, you would would take us to new heights of of your love as well as uh, depths for how much we need your love in our lives, we pray. Amen. Well, help me finish the lyric. You guys ready? We've got a little choir going here, okay? All you need is... Da-da-da-da-da. All you need is... Da-da-da-da-da. That is beautiful. Awesome. we got a choir. All right, Hannah Faye, take note. Uh, we know who all was singing here. So... Um, Pretty much everybody knows that Beatles song. It's timeless. And the emphasis of the song is that all everyone, all anyone ever needs is love. And according to John Lennon, the purpose of the song was to show people all over the world that love is everything. Now, that may sound wonderful, but what exactly does that mean? See, love is such a poorly defined word in our culture today, isn't it? People love such a wide range of things. People love their spouses, and they even love their favorite pair of sneakers. 
in my house, my kids have learned not to use the word love every five seconds. I mean, think about it. People say things like, I love this coffee, or I love that movie, or I love the sushi there, right? Uh, and, and so my instruction to my kids has been that you cannot use the word love in relationship to an inanimate object. The rule is, if it cannot love you back, then you cannot say you love it. Instead, I know this is kind of corny and stupid, instead we jokingly say, I significantly appreciate this coffee. <laughs> yeah, corny, I know, a little bit comical. But I want to make sure my kids know that love is a very important word. Of all the words to get right, love is the word that tops the list, does it not? Now, I don't wish to complicate things further. In the Greek language, there's actually four uh, different words that depict varying kinds of love. There is storge love, which is affection love. Uh, there is phileia love, which is friendship love. There is eros, which is erotic love. But then there is agape, which is the highest form of love. Agape is charity love, it's unconditional love, it's sacrificial love. Agape is the word that Jesus used when he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love agape, your neighbor, and hate your enemy. But I say to you, agape, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying that that your Father in heaven loves the unlovable, and since you're his children, you are to love this way too. It's a, it's a family portrait that, that Jesus and John here are, 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 are presenting us. If you were to look at a portrait of God over the fireplace, it would be a portrait that in some way manifests that he is loving, and that all of God's children gathered in that portrait would manifest this love too. And this is the main thrust of these five verses. I don't know if you notice it, but they start, they kind of bookend with this, with this call to love. Verse 7 begins with, beloved, let us love one another. And the last word of the bookend uh, verse is verse 11. It says, beloved, if God so loved us, so, also ought, so we also ought to love one another. Now, the word beloved, guess what? Agapatoi, <laughs> right? That's the, that word right there. It means loved ones or beloved. And John's point to us this morning is this. This is the main idea we're going to see. Because we are beloved by God, we uh, let us love one another as God has loved us. Now, it sounds all right. Sounds kind of like we can affirm that, but it's just hard to, to wrap our heads around and even harder for us to put it into practice. So this morning we're gonna look at three areas. We're gonna look at the location, we're gonna look at the illumination, and then the logic. First, the location. Now, I think this might be the last song that, that I sing for you here today, but do you remember Johnny Lee's hit? I know Tom does. Uh, I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces. There we go. Man, that's a good song, isn't it? Um, now, if this song teaches you one thing, other than the fact that your pastor needs voice lessons, it teaches you that you need to look for love in the right places. And John leads us to the right place. He takes us to love's very source. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, 
And why? For love is from God. Love is from God. If love were a river and you were paddling upstream through all the muddy waters, you would eventually, eventually get to a point where the water begins to clear and cool down. And even further up, you would come to its refreshing source. This illustrates the truth that the, that the farther away from the source, the muddier and messier our love. It also tells us that if you want to experience love at its best, you must press yourself closer and closer to God. God is the source of love. But also John shows us that God is the origin of love. They're similar, but not the same. Listen, God didn't buy the rights to love on the open market. <laughs> no, love isn't a creation. God has always existed, and therefore so has love. That's God's nature, is love. That's what John is saying in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Now, if you ask anyone on the street to describe, just to throw out some attribute uh, for God, most likely they would say what? That, that God is love, and they, they'd be right. But most likely there'd be some weakness with their answer as well. One error that people make is they equate love and God. That is to say they're one and the same thing. God is love, and love is God. There's a couple of problems with that. First, if love and God are the same thing, just different words for it, then none of the other attributes that we ascribe to God belong to God. I mean, if God is love and love is God, then all God is is love. Does that make sense? I mean, there's no room for his omniscience or his holiness or wisdom, right? And it would be good to point out that there there are other God is statements in scripture, are there not? In John's gospel, Jesus says God is spirit. Earlier in John's letter here, we read that God is light. In the letter to the Hebrews, we read that God is a consuming fire. The second problem is that if love and God are merely synonyms, then isn't it true that God would be stripped of his personhood? In other words, God is not a being with whom we may relate. So you can't have a relationship with love, but rather you can have a relationship based upon love. So we must not come to the fallacy that love and God are synonyms. Rather, John is telling us that it is God's nature to love. And so as we reflect on this truth, we're able to draw some right conclusions. One of them is, you know, is this, is because God is love and love is from God, if you've ever experienced the slightest, tiniest whiff of love, if you've ever had experience in which you felt love, and you know what that feels like, then it had at its source the love that originates in heaven. There is no other source. And this is also true. Anytime you've exhibited love towards another, your act of love is, is merely a syncopation upon the melody of love that is playing in heaven. So that's the location. Now for the illumination. If someone commissioned you to search the world over to find the greatest example of love, what would you illuminate? That reminds me of another song. 
You guys remember Hee Haw, don't you? I searched the world over and thought I found true love. You met another and you were gone. All right. I promise that's it. No more singing from me. Some of you might need to Google Hee Haw. Buck Owens, I miss that guy. All right. Search the whole world over for the greatest manifestation of love ever. And what would you shine that light upon? What would you illuminate? Thankfully, John does the heavy lifting for us. In verses 9 and 10, John shines the light upon the greatest manifestation and the greatest measure of love ever. And in these two realities, John illuminates for us as well deep longings of God. Do you know that God has longings? for you and for me. First, God longs for you to truly come alive, truly come alive. And second, God longs for reconciliation. God longs for you to truly come alive. My friends, this is true, and I hope you sense this, and most of you, I think, have. Every human being is born with a God-shaped hole that only God can fill. St. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. This is why the first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods than me. Listen closely. God does not say, You shall have no other gods before me because he is nervously low on self-esteem or because he demands slavish obedience. No, God says you shall have no other gods before me because he longs for us, human beings made in his image, to truly live. This is 100% grace and mercy to you. We human beings chase after all other gods in order to fill our God-shaped holes. We think of all the, think of all the false gods and idols that, that people bow down to. How many of you have bowed down to the idol, false god of successful career or beauty or financial security or Instagram-worthy experiences or Match.com success or perhaps the greatest idol today is the one of the enviable, look at us, make it family? God knows that careers and financial security and family are all good things. But listen, when we demand from family, from relationships, from career, we demand of these things that they fill the God-shaped hole in our lives, we're doomed to fail. God never meant for these things to fill us. He made us to be filled by him. And the sooner we recognize this, the better. For until we do, we will never really live as God intended for us to live. And so here's why God declared, you shall have no other gods before me. It's pure grace to you and me. Because one, there is only one true God. And two, he made us. And in making us, he hardwired us for him. And three, therefore, to truly be alive as God made us to live, then, then God alone must complete us. And four, since all of mankind is born trying to fill their God-shaped with all kinds of other things other than God himself, 
we have a problem that only God can fix. Do we agree to that? Which gets us back to our passage, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God's love is manifested through his longing for you and me to truly live through him. Consider the loving pity that God has for you and for me. He sees us feverishly, feverishly trying to find the one thing that can fill that God-shaped hole. And he sees us, how we're captive by the enemy. And so in love, he sends his son. Listen, this world's only hope at truly living is through the Son of God who came down so that we might be set free, made alive, and filled with Christ. In John's Gospel, Jesus describes how as the good shepherd, he laid down his life that the sheep may experience what? Life abundantly. He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am what? The good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is making a bold claim that that you disregard at your own peril. He is saying that that if you come to him and give him your, your life to him and you entrust him to shepherd you, then and only then do you truly come alive and live in the abundance that only God can fill you with. You know, I think as Christians, we know that. But we really need to know that. We need to be reminded of this. We need to press it deep into our lives, how foolish we are to look elsewhere. For those of you here yet to turn to Christ, consider God's commandments to have no other gods than him and turn to Christ and come alive in Christ and in God's love. God made you for a relationship with him, so Humble yourself and come to him. For those of us, most of us here who've trusted in Christ, may we be reminded how easy it is to go back to those old idols in search of happiness. Remember John's warning from earlier in this letter, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, what? The love of the Father is not in him. He's saying that to Christians. Until you die or Christ returns, we will be tempted to try to fill that God-shaped hole by desiring things of this world to fill it. It's, It's our lot until Christ returns. So then let us be drawn back to God's love as John has illuminated it for us this morning. God longs for us to come alive, and God longs for reconciliation. If verse 9 presents the manifestation of God's love. Verse 10 provides us with the measure of love. Now, how do you measure God's love? John is saying that God loves us so much that he sent his only son into the world to die in your place, to rise in your place, so that we might be reconciled, make peace, be at peace with God. 
See, God is love, and also God is just. He is not one at the expense of the other. He is simultaneously both. And check this out. On the cross, God's perfect justice and God's lavish love meet, and both are perfectly satisfied. Our sin, which separates us from God, was placed on his own divine son. That's the measure we are seeing here. His death was the propitiation, says John. Propitiation for our sins. Now, to propitiate, I know it's a word we don't really use too much here uh, in America these days, but it means to satisfy God's wrath, to turn away his anger, to satisfy his anger. Now, Try not to do me any favors or God any favors um, by insisting that God doesn't get angry. Let me ask you, do you not get angry when you hear that a company knowingly polluted some river? Do you not get angry when you hear that some young healthy person (laughs) cut in line and got the COVID vaccine ahead of some elderly people? Do you not get angry at all kinds of injustices in this world? Of course you do. You would be wrong not to. And so the question is, well, then, if it's good and right for you to be angry, how much more so God? You're not doing God any favors by insisting he's not allowed to be angry. And listen, you will never know the extent, the measure of God's love, until you acknowledge that he has every right to be angry and even angry at you. We've all fallen short. We're all guilty. No one alive other than Jesus is without sin. And so to understand the full measure of God's love, you must comprehend how far from God you are or once were and just how unloving and unlovely you really are. That is what John is saying to us. To see the full measure of God's love, you must come to find yourself at the cross See, at the cross, God loves the loveless. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God that loves the loveless. The greatest sin you can ever commit is not to love the most lovable thing in being in the universe who has lavished you with all gifts and grace. John illuminates for us the manifestation and the measure of love. God longs for us to come alive in Christ, and he longs for our reconciliation. All right, we looked at the location and the illumination. Now for the logic. You guys ready? In verse 11, John brings his portrait of God's love to its logical conclusion. Let me read it again. See if you can see the logic here. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, right? Kind of like, Billy, your brother shared his toys with you. Now share your toys with your brother, right? It seems kind of simple, right? But it can be so hard. Let me give you my own paraphrase other than Billy and Johnny here. Um, Here's what 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 he's saying. He's saying, loved ones of God, if God has so sacrificially loved us, 
and he has, doesn't it make perfect sense that we would love others with the same love that God has shown us? That's the logic here, right? It makes perfect sense. Now, what he's doing, though, he's saying not just love the lovely. I mean, that's how the world loves. We love the lovely. But love the loveless. Love the enemy. Love those you wish to despise and those you need to forgive. Beloved, this is how this is how God has loved you, and this is the logical outflow. It's that we would love like our Father, too. I don't know about you, but I find that I regularly need to repent for how I love or lack love. I can be petty. I can lack eagerness to do the hard work of love, and love is hard work. Our Savior has shown us that. Sometimes they just want to say, I'm not up to it today. How about you? John points us to the logic in verse 11, precisely because we need reminding. We are beloved. We need reminding that we're the beloved of God, that God has loved us when we did not love him. He loved us with an agape love, a sacrificial love, a love that loves enemies. And since God has loved us so, let us then love as God has loved us. That's the logic. It's not hard to wrap our heads around that, right? But it's hard to put into practice. My guess is that some of you here in the sanctuary have people that have put you in positions that makes it so hard to love. So hard. And everything in you screams, you are justified to be angry and vindictive. But that's not the way God has loved you. So it's not easy to put into practice. Which is why God in his infinite logic gave us all that we need to live out this calling to live with agape love. What do I mean? Well, John highlights three amazing ways in which the Christian has been made new and therefore is now powerfully able to live out this logic. We'll go through them really quick. In verse 7, John reminds us that we have a new nature and a new relationship. He writes, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The beloved of God has a new birth and a new relationship with God. And in verse 9, he says we have, we have a new life. When he writes, God sent his only son in the world so that we might live through him. Listen, this is God's work in you because you are his beloved. He does not leave you hanging. He does not call you to do something so so over-the-top, hard, difficult, complex as to love like he does without changing us, without giving us the power to do so. God loves you, and you are his beloved, and so you have been given a new nature from God, a new relationship with God, and a new life of living through Christ in you. See, to love God, to love as God has loved us, we need God in us, do we not? 
And this is what John is referring to, this new birth, this new relationship, this new life is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is the new spiritual birth that Jesus promised. We, we are born again. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. Yes, some of the old tendencies and habits still linger, but we are new, manifestly new. Now, please understand this, too. You cannot love like God loves until this new birth has come upon you, until this new life has been pressed into you. This past week in uh, the Grace Group I lead, one of my co-leaders, uh, Jason Kohler, asked a great question. I think his parents are here too. Wow, so that's great. So your son asked good questions. Um, we were discussing the fruit of the Spirit. You know, in Galatians, Paul writes that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And what's that last one? Oh, yeah, self-control. Um, and Jason was wondering if non-Christians were able to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, or can only Christians live them out? And my short answer was yes and no. Yes, non-Christians, even atheists, can display love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, because every person is made in the image of God. Not that, we, not that that image isn't marred in some way, but we all are able, every human being, is able to reflect these things. They've been wired in us in a certain way. And so even if they don't believe in God, they've tasted love, joy, peace, etc. And they can, but listen, in a diminished way, manifest those qualities. And we as Christians should affirm that when we see it in others. We have not cornered the market on anything as Christians. We just operate in grace as new creatures. But the problem is, and here comes, here's where the no comes from. The problem is, is that until one has come alive by the Holy Spirit, their experience of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control will always fall short. Now, it's not that before you're born again, love and joy and peace mean one thing, and now that God gives you new life, there's something totally different altogether. No, but these words these realities take on totally new meanings. It, and and they, they take on new divine dimensions. Just as someone who scuba dives knows kind of what it's like to swim like a fish, and just as someone who hang glides kind of knows what it's like to fly like a bird, but only if you have the nature of a Fish. Can you really swim like a fish? And only if you have the nature of a bird can you then really know what it's like to fly like a bird. So too, one must be born of God into this new nature to fully grasp love at an entirely glorious level. Let's tease this out here. Take, for instance, the experience of joy. Until God gives you his spirit, you won't experience the fullness of joy that only God can fill you with. See, earthly joy is fleeting, right? It's because earthly joy depends upon favorable circumstances. And so earthly joy runs from hardship. But the, but the fruit of the spirit is a joy that is yours. It fills you no matter your circumstances. 
In fact, if you are God's beloved, you have come to understand that it's actually in the most trying times of your life that your joy is the greatest. Do you follow that? This new life must be present before you can understand before you can experience that kind of joy. And the same is true with all the fruit of the Spirit, including love. It's only when you soak in the love of God as one born of God that you can love the unlovable, forgive the unforgivable, turn the other cheek and be glad you did despite your loss. You are born of God. You you now know God. And you live now through Christ who dwells in you. So let us follow the logic. God has so loved us with an agape love, so also we ought to love one another. It makes perfect sense. And because God has made us new and poured his spirit into us, listen, we lack nothing. We we lack nothing. We can and ought to love as God has loved us. That's why John says, hey, you know what? I'm thinking we ought to love. So, simple application as we come to the Lord's table. Throughout this letter, remember, we're we're in a letter, right? Um, John keeps saying this word over and over and over. Abide. Abide in God, and God abides in you. Next week's passage, the very first verse, has the words, God abides in us. To abide means to draw near, so near that by God's Spirit we dwell in God, and God dwells in us. And as it happens the love and life and purposes of God, they come alive in us. What a wonderful way to live with God himself filling our God-shaped holes. Unlike Lenin's lyrics, love isn't all we need, but love does bring us into relationship with the one who is all we need. In a moment, we're going to come forward and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so let's meditate upon this portrait of God's love. This table is a portrait of God's love for his beloved. And, you know, when God asked the, God the Father asked Jesus the Son, how much do we love the world? Jesus stretched out his arms and said, we love the world this much. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us new birth. Without that, we would be lost. We wouldn't even know it. We'd be happily chasing after things of this world to fill that hole that only you can fill. We would worship created things rather than the creator who is forever blessed. This is grace upon grace to us. This is your work. You're the one who came down. You loved us while we did not love you. And so this changes us. This kind of love is different. It's spectacular. It is otherworldly, and yet it's come into this world. And so, Father, help us as your people to delight in this love, to resonate with this love, to be filled with this love, and to go out into this world and to manifest this love, to show the world how much you long for people to come alive in Christ Jesus and to forgive their sins, we pray. Amen.